0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. It is good to return. It seems like the the annual trip, as Matt has been so generous, as uh, to, to have me come back and to get to do something I love to do, and that is to open God's Word and point to Christ. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we open to Matthew's Gospel. I encourage you to go ahead and open there and open to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Uh, I've been in the last, it seems like two years plus or something like that, working through Matthew. Uh, Maybe I'll finish, Lord willing, by Easter or something like that over at Grace Bible. Um, So this was like some time ago when I was in Matthew 13, it seemed like earlier this year. And we are jumping right in the middle of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, mainly through these parables and illustration. And so that's what we're going to to read uh, as we talk and think through also what is kingdoms like, what that means for our faith, why we should keep trusting in him even when what we expect, uh, what we might expect about our God when he's bringing his kingdom is not the same as what actually it's like, how do we deal with those unmet expectations. But let's put the scripture before us, and then I want to pray once more, and we will uh, look to our Christ. So we're going to read Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, and we're going to go through verse 43. This is what Holy Scripture says. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour Till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, "'The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age.'" The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray together. Indeed, O God, we ask that you would give us open listening and hearing ears. We need you to overcome our hardness of heart. We need you to overcome our dullness of spirit. We need you to overcome our apathy and the trajectory of even just the the old man that remains even in those who trust in you. We see your glory as we look to the heavens. It's so evident wherever we look. It proclaims your handiwork. And yet we need more than just Creation to testify to you, we need your perfect word, for there our souls will be revived. We need the testimony that is yours, that is sure, for it makes wise the simple. We need your precepts, O God, for they are right, they cause our hearts to rejoice. We need your commandments, O Lord, they are pure, they open and enlighten our eyes. We need to fear you, this is clean and endures forever. Your rules are true, O God, they are righteous altogether. May we desire and want them more than anything more than all the gold of this world, more than all that is sweet. For by them your servant is warned, and there we have great reward as we keep your word. You know our errors. You can see them. We play that through Christ we be declared innocent of these things. Keep us back from presumptuous sins. Let those sins not have dominion over us, namely because we look to your Son, and we have your Spirit, and he works through a redeemed people. So go, God, as we turn to your word, O Christ, as you intercede for us, spirit, as you work through the preached word, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been said that the leading cause in ruined relationships is this, unmet expectations. And it wasn't a Christian that told me this but it rings true with what we so often talk about as pastors in the marital and premarital counseling we do I'm sure here at Kingsway the same you you have to deal with expectations and namely what you do when they're not met you talk about these especially as christian spouses to ask i need to compare my expectations what i want in a relationship versus what the scriptures actually teach me what what god tells me my expectations should be in, in any marriage or relationship and so we must turn to the scripture and especially we need to turn to the scripture when we discover, well, my expectations aren't, were not met and this is how I responded. What does the scripture say about that? For the Christ follower, of course, anger, retaliation, rejection, bitterness, these are not options for us. That's not the character of our God. And yet so often, divorces stem from these very things. Unmet expectations that haven't been dealt with that is biblically and full of grace. And so when someone's expectations are not being met, so often they bail, they're gone. Well, have you ever felt like that with Christ? Have you ever had thoughts like that about Christianity, about following Jesus? He's just not ticking my boxes. He's not meeting my expectations I want something different than Jesus. I need something more. And to that, or for us as Christians, or or for the outsider, Christ comes as he teaches about his kingdom to teach us what his kingdom is really is like. And namely, it might not meet all of your expectations. But Jesus reveals as he teaches here, if it doesn't meet your expectations, that's not because his kingdom is deficient. It's because your view of him is. And so he invites us into a better kingdom, a better relationship, and a better life, one that we, better than we were even expecting. And so this is a word for us. It's better than you expect with our king. So keep trusting him when your expectations are not being met, when he's not ticking all of your boxes, when things aren't turning out the way you, you thought. Keep trusting Christ, your king, for his kingdom is going to come in ways you did not expect. And when we turn through these parables that we saw, we're going to see five surprises about Christ's kingdom that defies your expectations. Five surprises about Christ's kingdom in this world that defies our expectations and teaches us, oh, we have all reason to keep trusting him. And so the first one is this, is that God's kingdom doesn't, does not end all evil at first. God's kingdom as it arrived, As it arrives, does not end all evil at first. And we see that in these opening verses that we're looking at, verses 24 through 30. This first unmet expectation perhaps embodies what the Jews of Jesus' own day so misunderstood about Christ's kingdom. And maybe us when we first started following Jesus. For the Jews at that time, what did they expect? They expected this Messiah who's a, a liberating ruler a great conqueror, namely that was going to set them free from Roman oppression. But Jesus' kingdom, it's quite different. And to make this point, he gives what was now, as you might just look around in the context here, this is another parable about his kingdom. And actually here in Matthew 13, we're dropping right into the middle of a whole host of Jesus' parables about the kingdom. So we need to comment, well, what is a parable Our English word parable actually comes right from the Greek word that's used here, parabali. And it's a compound word which means you cast something beside it. To be a comparison, to be an analogy. You're casting something beside something to to make a comparison. This is what it's like. He's teaching us about the kingdom through these little stories. These parable then, these are analogies to, to bring light, to bring clarity. These are pictures to illustrate what his kingdom is like in a name, in a kernel spiritual truth. And so we're always looking, well, what's the main point of this parable? Not all of the details are always significant, but there's a singular moral, so to speak, or truth about the kingdom that comes out. And so what is it here? And so for this first parable, the parable of the weeds, as he tells it, it's this, as his kingdom arrives, it does not eliminate or eradicate all evil right away. Rather, his kingdom grows right up beside evil in this world. Even after the kingdom of God arrives and comes on the scene, the world is still a mixed bag, a mixed bag of good and evil, of kingdom people and those who are not kingdom people. And again, this is quite contrary to the hope of many Jews of Jesus' day. Well, let's look at it. Let's look at this parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the parable of the weeds, and it begins in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. You have good seed being planted in a man's field. Only we find that this field is quickly corrupted. Verse 25. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now this might seem strange to us in our own day, but this kind of behavior was very common back in ancient times. And rather, it was so prevalent, Roman law expressly forbid this, and with penalty. Because this kind of ruse among your neighbor might prove, or to your enemy, it might prove so devastating uh, if you mess with someone's crop or field, understand you're going right after their pantry. You're going right after their, their stomachs. You're going right after their family. This was a great threat. They lived off this wheat. And you are seeding poison among the crop. And so this is, this is attempted murder, really. One poisonous weed called Darnell, actually, that grows in these parts of the world, It appears and grows almost identically looking like wheat. It's only once the ear or the crop appears that you can finally distinguish, am I looking at wheat or am I looking at poison? Hence we read in verse 26. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now once his farmers notice, they go to the master, the Lord's attention. They bring it to his attention. Verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And and to be clear, they're not accusing him, the master, of having bad seed. Uh, They they know that he used good seed. They helped probably put it down. But still, the question remains well, why why do we have weeds then? What's happened? Well, the owner knows, verse 28. He knows exactly what's gone on. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Now, Remember this about parables. These are more like analogies than they are allegories. That means we are not made or intended to press every detail. So we might wonder, well, how did the master know? Did he get in an argument with the farmer the day before or something like this? Doesn't matter. <laughs> let's, get the, let's get to the heart of the story. Here's the point. He's saying, we have a mixed field. There's going to be good and bad crop. In this world. And what's to be done about this? A farmer asked in verse twenty eight. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them out? Shall we try and remove those weeds? Want us to weed the field now? His answer comes in verse twenty nine, but he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. And sure, it's too risky. It's too risky to this plan. You might ruin the crop if you tried to weed the field now. They'll have to be left to grow together. Now, they won't always stay together. There will be a great sorting at the end, at the harvest. Verse 30, let both grow until the harvest. and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then the story ends just like that. And the crowds standing on the periphery, those on the outside, they have to be left with all kinds of questions. What? What are you talking about? What is he getting at? Even the closest followers of Jesus, the disciples, they wondered, Because it's only once they get alone with Jesus, you see that here in verse 36, they ask him about it. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us this parable. What were you talking about? Tell us in more detail. And and we're going to do that together once we get there, but we must make a few comments here. And so I, I just want you to identify a couple things of this parable that we can make the most sense of it. First, we need to know who the wheat and weeds are, and we need to note where they are planted, okay? Verse 38, we find part of the answer says, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So to frame it then, these plantings, these competing crops, are sown together in the field of the world, That is on earth the whole worldwide scene we have children of jesus kingdom and we have sons of the devil growing up in this world side by side that's the way god's kingdom comes into this world and so though his kingdom is here and it's here as much as his kingdom people are here It doesn't yet shove out, eradicate, overcome all evil at once. It exists right beside it. That was part of the design and plan. And again, for the Jews of that time, this is a colossal disappointment if they understood this. What do you mean you're going to leave Rome in power over us? What do you mean we're still going to be oppressed? We were waiting for you to deal with this. What kind of king are you? What kind of kingdom is this that you can tolerate such evil to be right by us? If you're here, that promised king of kings, then bad things shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be happening to me. You ever said things like this? You might expect getting on the Lord's good side might change all that for you. I mean, he's the creator, isn't he? He's sovereign and in control, isn't he? He loves me now, doesn't he? Right? And so things in the world should start getting better for me. I'm a son of the king. We might start going to church because we think it's going to make our lives better. It might help my marriage. It It might help my kids find good friends. But once my physical life or my circumstances go bad, we might complain. What gives? I didn't sign up for that. What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of king are you that would let me or someone I love go through this? And so then our expectations of a better earthly life crumble and sometimes crash, don't they? And this parable comes to recalibrate our expectations by the truth, by the real kingdom of Christ and where it resides. Understand, the arrival of the promised kingdom of Christ will not first eradicate all evil evidently and just bring your life is beautiful now in every way. That's not what he promises. That's not what he tells us. He doesn't come to bring you your best life now. This real world is a mixed bag of sons of heaven, sons of the devil. It's a mixed bag of good and evil even in your own life. But with eyes of faith, and here's what we're getting at, with trust in Christ, you can still see, even still, the transforming greatness of this new kingdom. It just doesn't look like better jobs, higher incomes, what it looks like, and it's about the parable he was talking about before in particular, it looks like a transformed, changed heart. That's where the kingdom starts, unseen, right in the heart. Second, the second thing you wouldn't expect is that God's kingdom doesn't start big. God, the almighty, the great king, the creator of all his kingdom, when it infiltrates this world, does not start big. Verses 31 and 32. Again, you would think when God comes to rule to bring his kingdom, that's going to be a big deal. Everyone would see it. Everyone would know it. There'd be no way to ignore it. I mean, this is God after all. But this next parable teaches us that this kingdom starts very small and seemingly it's irrelevant. Verse 31 now of Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And so we have the illustration, the parable, the analogy here. But how or in what way is this like Christ's kingdom? And so Jesus makes the connection for us. establishes the point in verse 32. About that seed, it is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now there's a lot of analogies we can draw or make. But the singular focus here to this parable is... It's not, I would contend, it's not the process of growth, as much as it is the contrast from start to finish. You understand the difference? I'm not talking about how it's growing, but what do you start with and what do you get with at the end? It's about contrasting the smallest little seed at the start, and it becomes the largest plant in your garden at the end. And truly, the analogy he picks, it's remarkable. If you contrast the start and finish of the mustard plant, those seeds are tiny round balls. They look like peppercorns, but just shrunken and miniaturized. The mustard seed measures about one millimeter in diameter. I mean, the thing's teeny. This little thing, if you drop it, you'll never find it. And yet as it plants and drops, it can grow to a plant that's over four feet high or even can get four feet wide, excuse me, and can get even as tall as 10 or 15 feet in the air in certain parts of Israel. Again, it's the tiniest of seeds. If you drop it, you'll never find it again. But that little itty bitty seed can grow well over your head. And Jesus says, my kingdom is just like that. It might look small. It might look insignificant. It might look irrelevant. It might look inconsequential. If you looked at the start or what we began with, you would overlook it. You might never find it. As to its meager beginnings, this kingdom, you would guess, it's going to amount to nothing. But like the mustard seed, don't look at the kingdom's small start and assume you know how this is going to turn out. Because by the end, this kingdom plant will be so big, it's going to house birds in its branches. Verse 32 at the end, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Several times in the Old Testament, the figure of birds nesting in a plant or large tree, it pictures this. It pictures a greater kingdom that harbors and envelops all other smaller nations. So for example, the prophet Ezekiel pictures the Messiah's kingdom as a great tree planted by God. And we read this in Ezekiel 17 verse 23, that under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. I think this is what he's alluding to the other birds the other nations will rest in this greatest kingdom tree of God tying these images together then though it will start teeny small by all appearances in the end it will be the kingdom that covers over all other kingdoms ruled by the king who is over all other kings And it will be and remain forever the greatest kingdom ruled by the greatest king. But you never would have guessed it if you saw the start. If you saw the start of, if you're working through the gospel, these ragtag fishermen, you have some obscure teacher who seems to come from nowhere notable. And yet, that's the very way God works. He does it this way by design. And so it is. As you consider the kingdom of God, as you consider the work of God in your own life, are you ever underwhelmed? Are are you ever doubtful? Well, I don't think that's going to amount to much. Is it really worth following? Remember the mustard seed. Remember this parable. His kingdom starts small, but by design to undercut our pride and reliance on ourselves, among many other reasons. Why? Because then God has to do great things, not us. And so in your Christian life, don't scoff at small, faithful starts. That's how God typically works. You want to reach your community for Christ? Maybe tomorrow you will not be able to host evangelistic crusade. But you know what you might do? You might give a gospel track to a friend. That's not to be sneezed at, so to speak. Maybe you'll never be a well-known Christian pastor or, or Christian author or commentator. But you could start discipling one person, encouraging them in Christ to walk after him. Maybe you'll never be elected to office and get laws passed. But you could start a prayer group with even one other believer begging God to grow his kingdom. Again, those are small starts, but they're faithful ones that are big of faith in a big God. Not in our big abilities or big appearances. We obey God even in the small things. And then we, really, we leave the results up to him, right? He will build his kingdom in the end. And he'll mostly do it through small faithful acts of obedience. Getting his word faithfully out there. Third. God's kingdom can't be seen, at least at first. This is what surprises us about his kingdom. God's kingdom can't be seen, verse 33. This leads us to next, the next parable that Jesus gives. And it underscores that his kingdom remains hidden until you can see it with believing eyes. And he uses a familiar illustration of yeast's Or leaven working through dough. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, just to extrapolate a little bit about this parable, you should understand the quantities we're dealing with here about this leaven or yeast that was hidden in three measures of flour. To be clear, this is a whole lot of flour. This is not three cups. This is not three little scoops by which you might make, you know, some bread for your family. We're talking to the equivalent of 50 pounds of flour. We're talking about you're preparing a feast for a hundred guests. We're talking about Texas Roadhouse, who's just churning out those hot rolls all evening, right? That's what we're dealing with here. We're talking about a whole mess of flour, but it has to be leavened if it would ever rise. And yet, it will take just a little bit of leaven that is needed to just spread and infiltrate this huge lump. And and so, the the picture or or image of this parable, it does does closely parallel the whole mustard seed analogy. And yet, it does. This leaven illustration has a different emphasis, at least as the way Jesus tells it here. With the mustard seed, Jesus was highlighting for us how small things started. Here, the focus is not so much about how much leaven there is, but what's his focus? Looking at verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What's the emphasis here? It's that the leaven is hidden. It's enveloped. It's folded into the flour, into the dough, such that from the outside, you would never know leaven's there. It's hidden. If the lady didn't tell you, you wouldn't know. And yet, though it's hidden, and so from the outside, you cannot see it. Nevertheless, the kingdom is very much there. And it's alive, and it's working, and it's permeating the whole thing. Working to saturate, transform, and influence its way through the whole lump. And it will do that. That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom leaven will eventually take it all over. And God's kingdom, even now, come to earth is just like this. Maybe you can't see it from the outside. And maybe you might not know it's there unless someone told you, but it's there and it is at work. And so what we discover about the kingdom is that it comes as first and foremost as a spiritual kingdom that rules on the inside. A kingdom where, as we noted, God first transforms the heart. Certainly before we ever touch on the fabric and norms and institutions of our society. Recall later on, of course, when Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate in John 18. You know, Pontius Pilate, he represents the kingdom of Rome. And he has all the power and look of this mighty empire. They had the government buildings. They they had the soldiers, the fortresses, the borders. You knew where the kingdom of Rome was. They had the coins, the stamps, the insignias. Roman rule in the land, everywhere they looked was so obvious. It was not hidden. Everyone knew who ruled in Jerusalem. It was Rome. But then Pilate asked Jesus if Jesus is indeed a king. And here's how Jesus replied. This is John 18, verse 36. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus reigns, he rules over a kingdom that now operates on a different plane. It rules over a different sphere and that way the kingdom's hidden. It's hidden to all those who are fighting over votes, who are fighting over laws, who are fighting over territories and borderlands. Christ is first a spiritual kingdom hidden from plain view. Ruling over transformed hearts, not over institutions. Hearts reborn and brought to faith and obedience to Jesus. Now, those kingdom hearts ruled by Jesus, yes, you might find them in Congress. You might find them in city halls. You might find them and have them placed in a neighborhood or in a community. Maybe they're situated on a kid's basketball team or positioned in a sea of cubicles at work. But not for the purpose to institute some hostile takeover. Nor to try and baptize, so to speak, all of these civic groups into Christianity. To put Christian symbols on everything. That's not how his kingdom goes. His kingdom agenda comes in hidden ways. Namely, working on hearts that you can't see. Positioning kingdom people in all of those places who are armed with the seed of the gospel. And that's how the kingdom grows. That's where mercy is found. That's how people are invited to come to the king. It doesn't come from outside pressure. That's not where his kingdom starts. It comes from the inside out gospel heart transformation. Fourth, another surprising thing about his kingdom is that God's kingdom won't be believed. You won't believe it verses 34 through 35, back to Matthew 13. Again, you might expect if our Creator came to earth and building a new kingdom, kingdom of justice and righteousness and mercy, you would think everybody would sign up to be a part of that kingdom. Everybody would cast their vote for Jesus. Everybody would want to get on board. And yet, defying expectations, we find that this king is hardly trusted. Why? Why? Well, Matthew gives us the answers as He explains the very reason that Jesus teaches in parables. First of all, we note that as Jesus teaches the crowds, as He teaches the, you might call them, the uncommitted, those who are standing on the outside wondering, Jesus always teaches them in enigma. He always teaches them in parables. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 13. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And his closest disciples had asked him about this earlier on in chapter 13. They asked him, why do you teach in parables, Jesus? Make it plain. Why do you always teach in riddles and figures? And it might surprise you, but the answer is not because he's a good teacher and he likes to use illustrations. He has another reason that he uses parables. Look back up to verse 11 of Matthew 13. Here's Jesus' answer. And he answered them, Why do you teach him parables? To you, speaking to the disciples by themselves, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, those on the outside, it has not been given to them. Isn't that interesting? He actually tells parables in part to hide the truth from those who won't draw near to him. These secrets of the kingdom are only intended for those that will trust him, who will draw near, who will inquire and submit to his teaching. Those on the outside, it's hidden from them. It might be heard, but it's not understood. Indeed, this was actually part of God's judgment upon them for the crowds and their unbelief. And here, Matthew, to our text, expands on that as he brings to light another but related reason. Why does Jesus teach him parables? So let's see it. Look at verse 35 now. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now that seems straightforward enough, I think. Jesus speaks in parables. Parables. Because the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would do just that. I will open my mouth in parables, the text says. But there's more to it than this. And I need to show you that. So we need to go to where the quote is found. Go back with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 78. Go back in your Bibles to the 78th Psalm. The subscript of the psalm ascribes it to Asaph and he indeed served Israel as a prophet. And he opens the psalm with this call. This call for Israel to heed and listen to him. And so Psalm 78 begins and says, "Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, and incline your ears to the words of my mouth." He's saying, "Listen up. Listen closely." I have something so important to tell you. And then Asaph continues, verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. So Asaph confesses right off that whatever he's going to say right now, it's going to be hard to grasp. It's going to be hard to understand. It will be a parable. It will be, he says, a dark saying. And of course, that's the quote that Matthew picks up on in our text that we're studying. But notice, this doesn't seem to really be about the Messiah. It seems to be about Asaph himself, that he's speaking in parables. He's not making some prediction about what the Messiah would do. Okay, well, how does that work then, you know, Pastor Rick? How can Matthew say Jesus fulfills this when you have an Old Testament psalmist or prophet saying that he is the one that will speak in parables? Asaph doesn't seem to be predicting anything. And yet, maybe he does, but just not in the way we expected or typically think. Because what we find is that Asaph's parables here, they reveal the same truth that Jesus' parables reveal. Let me show you this as we look further at the Psalm. Namely this, God's people, his chosen ones, Israel, they won't believe. That's the truth he tells them. Their hearts are hard to the truth. Look back at, look back at Psalm 78 here and let's see what Asaph talks about. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says this, he says, we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. We will tell of his might. We will tell of the wonders that God has done. And yet too, we also find even as Asaph rehearses the deeds of God done in history and done for his people, what do we also find? Even though God has worked so miraculously for his people, they over and over again reject him and don't believe. That's what he chronicles in Psalm 78. For example, just looking down to verses 12 through 16, Asaph recalls how the Lord brought them out of Egypt and he did so with great miracles for them. And yet look at their almost immediate response that he reminds us of. Verse 17 of Psalm 78. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. What happened is he brought Israel out of slavery. They, in unbelief, griped and complained about about God almost immediately. And even still, in his mercy, he tells us he still fed them with manna. Again, he just gives them so much grace. But what happens? Look down to verse 32. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. They just wouldn't trust God. And that's the theme throughout the psalm. God does great works of deliverance. God's people reject it. They still won't believe. God does great works of mercy, even in spite of that, they still won't believe. That was the parable, the mystery that Asaph was talking about. That was his dark saying. And back to Matthew 13, that's the same one Jesus is teaching in his own day. Fulfilling the same idea, the same notion that we see throughout these parables in Matthew. The majority of the people who hear the word, who even seem to receive the word, do not actually believe the word. In other words, people will hardly believe in Christ and so join his kingdom. And so what does that mean for us to to temper our expectations? Understand Christ's kingdom, it's never going to be the majority opinion. It's never going to be the ultimate influencer in the world until Christ returns. In the main, his kingdom is going to be rejected. They won't believe it. So as you share the gospel, as you speak up for Christ, as we long for others to find mercy with Jesus, I mean, can it not be very discouraging to see so many reject him? And on account of that, we may be tempted to think ourselves, what are we missing? Could the majority of others be so wrong? Could all the academics, all the experts, all the paleontologists, all the many scientists, my friends, my family, could they all really be wrong? I know they're not dumb. But understand, it's nothing wrong with Christ or with Christ's word or His Christ's kingdom. The problem is just by the default of our own heart, we are bent on unbelief. And we are all there if God doesn't intervene, causing new life in our hearts, giving us faith to see, to see the truth and mercy that's in Christ. So as that means, one, give him thanks for his intercession, causing you to be born again. But two, don't let a majority opinion rule. And so put out your faith, urging you to discount Christ and his kingdom trying to convince you, well, it's not popular, so it can't be real. It can't be true. Jesus predicted that very thing would be said. And yet, he still reigns. And like his promise, he's bringing it all to pass, believe it or not. Finally, the last thing that in particular surprises us here about Christ's kingdom is this. God's kingdom won't spare evil in the end. That will surprise many. Verses 36 through 43. Since God kingdom, God's kingdom starts and seems so small at first, it seems invisible, it seems hard to see, it's not the majority opinion. Many expect or they assume God's kingdom will never then come with judgment, it will never come in force. But no, he assures us judgment's still coming to deal with all evil but in God's perfect time. And Jesus himself underscores for us this terrifying reality as he now explains the details of the first parable we heard. That parable of the weeds among the wheat. Because again, as we see, even though he speaks the parable to the crowd, the interpretation or the details, the explanation of the parable, he only gives to his disciples privately. Look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And our Lord obliges and does so by identifying all the various players, figures of the parable. Again, look at verses 37 through 39. And you see there that he interprets for us no less than seven figures (laughs) pictured in this parable. Now, we've been saying a parable is an analogy, not an allegory. And yet, when you have seven things that represent something else, it sure sounds like allegory. Sounds like we're reading Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress almost, doesn't it? And yet, even as he identifies these seven different figures, there still arises, arises one major point that Jesus is emphasizing, not several. And so we need to be careful to pick up what that primary point is. But first, to do that, we have to have the interpretive key What does this all point to? He tells us. Verse 37. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So the picture we have is this Christ builds his kingdom by planting kingdom people in the world. Only Satan comes along and he plants his own people right beside kingdom people. They grow up together. And that's the truth we highlighted the first go around. That even as God's kingdom is here, it's a mixed bag in this world with Christ's people and Satan's people growing up together. Now, after identifying all of the symbols and parts, though, Jesus then comes to the punchline that the crowds have missed. Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So yes, the parable teaches us that God's kingdom will be present. It will be mixed up, growing right alongside Satan's evil kingdom, but not forever. Harvest is coming. And recall, he identified the harvest with the end of the age. And so now he sets forth no analogies, no illustrations. He just tells us what's going to happen. Verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. He's going to send his harvesters in the world to gather up people. Specifically, here, they don't gather up Christ's people. They don't gather up kingdom people. No, they gather up the people that are not of his kingdom. The disobedient, the unbelieving, the lawbreakers. Why? Because he's gathering them up for judgment. Verse 42. And throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is terrifying. Those who rejected Christ's kingdom, who mocked the slowness of his coming, who presume upon his leniency of his judgment, because it was delayed, because it was slow, they will be gathered up to burn, and yet not be burned up, but to weep, mourn, and regret, and guilt themselves, and still rage against the painful justice. The full wrath of his judgment for their very real sins, sins and guilt before God, that is always very real, whether they felt that guilt, realized that guilt, or perceived that guilt... Justice will cast them away from God into the fiery furnace forever, where finally justice will rule and Christ will reign. All the evil and corruption will be driven out of the world, and the glory of God will cover the earth. And those who remain to enjoy it, His glory, they will shine with the glory of their Father. Verse forty-three. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I mean, what a glorious day that will be, right? I mean, can you see the glorious hope that awaits with eyes of faith, though? Because that's the only way you can see this. Because admittedly, right now, it's hard to see. It's hard to believe. That just over the horizon, so to speak, the next day, Christ is coming, evil will be gone. And that's hard to believe, though, as we look at what's going on in our own world, isn't it? But know this, the same was true of Christ's first coming. People were confused. He surprised them. They didn't recognize his glory. They didn't see his kingdom coming. They didn't see the great things God was doing even the first time. And that glorious prophecy given by Isaiah that so specifically predicted Christ's death on the cross Do you remember how it starts in Isaiah 53? Verse 1 reads this way. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You wouldn't believe it if you saw it, what he was doing in his first coming. Because the supposed Savior, the coming King, the Almighty, he looked insignificant. He looked small. He looked worse. He looked cursed by God. Here's how it goes on in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But then we understand why. Why did God do it this way? Because he was bearing our evils. He was bearing our judgment being punished for our wrongs, that we wouldn't get swept away in the judgment. Isaiah 53, verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So it is, see this, evil will not be spared in the end. Even the evils you have done will not be shown mercy. So there are two destinations then. Two options for your sins and your wrongs. Either we bear them and we are swept and cast away into the fires of judgment. Or we look to Christ to take those sins and all that punishment for us. If you will see him, if you will trust him. So where will your sin, your guilt, be found at the day of judgment? Will it be found on you? Or can you believe that this God came to bear it for you? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a glorious God and great kingdom if he would just give us eyes to see? Will we not, worshiping that lion and lamb that we sang about this morning, be shining with glory in the Father's kingdom? That day's going to come. Maybe not quite how you expected. But Jesus tells us all this ahead of time to say, don't bail. Don't give up yet. Don't lose heart. It's coming. Many won't see it. And that's just what I told you. But dear brothers and sisters, trust this king. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Wait for him. His promises never fail. And the cross has sealed it and proved it as he's now resurrected, interceding for all of you in him. Keep trusting and following this glorious king. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have given us a great king. A king we didn't deserve, a king really we didn't want in many ways, and yet you brought him anyway. We thank you for, by your spirit, opening our eyes to see glorious truths about this Christ that he's worthy of all of our trust. I thank you for your work and so many souls here at the Church of Kingsway, and we give you the praise for that. We see that's not from us, it's from you. You've overcome our unbelief, you're overcoming our our sin and our wickedness. You overcome the the guilt we had, you dealt with it, and now you live interceding. And so, again, we give you all the glory for this. I pray you strengthen your saints here that we'd walk in greater faith and faithfulness, uh, because we know you are faithful to the very end to your people, because your word is true, and on this we stand. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.